You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is not the sound of a stream running through the mountains. It's water from a leaking pipe trickling down a stairway. That's not a frog splashing into a lake. It's a piece of sheetrock falling into a puddle on a kitchen floor. And that's not a hiker taking a deep breath of mountain air. It's a homeowner gasping at the sight of a $12,000 water damage repair bill. 40% of homeowners have experienced water damage. Protect your home with the Moen Smart Water Monitor and Shutoff. Moen. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Automatically keeps out the sounds you don't want to hear so you can listen to your music. And lowers your music to let in the sounds you do need to hear. Hi there. Hi, what can I get you? I'll have a strawberry mango coconut probiotic smoothie with wheatgrass. Anything else? Extra wheatgrass. Here you go. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Available on AirPods Pro second generation when enabled. I remember the days when if you wanted to talk to someone across town... You got on your horse, Seth, and... No, that's, yeah, that's very funny, but I couldn't <laughs> afford a horse. No, that came later. First, we pounded out some papyrus, and we inked out a message. I see. No. You, you <laughs> called that person on the landline telephone in your home. That's right. Or if you're out and about, you found a phone booth. Well, a phone booth is endangered now, although there are still some elegant red ones in London pretty much just used for urinals now, I'm afraid. Well, anyhow, the point is, Molly, a phone call took a little effort, and it just wasn't something you did all day long wherever you happened to be instantly, continuously. This is my way of saying... That cell phones are pervasive, right? Yeah, and yet they are still a relatively new technology. I, I know some of you listeners can't believe there was a time before the portable phone, but there did exist a period in human history when we couldn't check our messages until we got home. horrors. (laughs) horrors. <laughs> Today, where we go, our phones go. How often a day do you use a cell phone? Two to three times a day. Probably 10 to 15 times. Probably every half hour to an hour. Can you imagine life without your cell phone? Nope. It would be lovely. I can't live without it. Like My phone is ringing right now. Nearly 5 billion people own cell phones. The world's population is 6 billion. That's... About 80% of everyone on the globe. All (laughs) those phones held up to all those years or minutes or for hours all through the day, every day. And some say this relationship is too close for comfort and for our health. We're hearing more and more about a possible link between cell phone use and illness, including cancer. It's a scary thought, given how ubiquitous these devices are. Which naturally leads to a lot of fear. But what do we know and what don't we know about the dangers of cell phones? Can they make us sick? I'm Molly Bentley. I'm Seth Shostak, and this is Skeptic Check on Are We Alone? Our monthly look at critical thinking. Hi, Mom. It's Stephanie. Oh, I don't think I can make it to the party today. Yeah. So what's the weather like in Sydney at the moment? I've heard it's getting pretty warm down there for uh, Every 10 microseconds, someone in the world places a cell phone call. Not all the conversation is as scintillating or as urgent. Hi, I got your message. Where are you? As would befit the need for instant communication. But there you have it. No, I didn't get your recess tomorrow. We humans are addicted. We want to be in touch. But the phones are also our bane. Cell phone talkers make us all crazy at times. Being accessible all the time can be a pain. But there are also reports of cell phones actually making people ill. The electromagnetic radiation, which is to say the microwave signal from the transmitter in the phone, 
is the presumed culprit. And it's only natural to be drawn to anecdotal stories. And to wonder. Cell phone use is relatively new to civilization, and it causes us to put a source of radio radiation right up against our heads. But there's more. After all, there are radio signals all around us, Wi-Fi for computers, portable phones, satellite and television broadcasts, and more. So could this wireless world be causing detrimental health effects? Well, some people think so. Recently, in the magazine Popular Science, journalist James Geary profiled Per Segerback, a man in Sweden who claims to suffer from electrohypersensitivity, or EHS. He says he feels dizzy and nauseous and has headaches when he's exposed to electromagnetic waves. The title of James Geary's article? the man who was allergic to radio waves. This man is is unique because he was in a previous life. About 20 years ago, he was a telecoms engineer. So he was working on very advanced telecommunication circuitry for a Swedish telecoms company. And about 20 years ago, he and some of his colleagues noticed they were starting to feel ill in their working environment. Some just felt like flush in the face. Some felt physically ill, others had blotches appearing on their skin and various very strange symptoms. And Pear was the most severely affected of all the people. And eventually the, the, the company did a you know a research into what was going on and they determined that it probably had something to do with the new computer equipment that they had just installed and the presence of so much cell phone radiation and cell phone masks that were so close by. So the idea was that the electromagnetic radiation from computers, cell phones, and so forth was making him ill. Yes. And as a result, he cannot be anywhere near any kind of electromagnetic radiation. So, for example, he had to move out of the city where he lived, and he now lives in a very remote cottage in the woods. And he has very few neighbors, and there are very few um, sort of sources of electromagnetic radiation in his immediate vicinity. But one day, he was out for a stroll in the woods, and he happened to come across one of his neighbors, and they were having a chat. And the person's cell phone rang, and he immediately became ill and fainted. And he's had these sort of seizures periodically throughout his life. And they can be very, very serious for him and and life-threatening. As a result, he has to isolate himself from any kind of source of electromagnetic radiation, even something as small as a cell phone. He um, heats his home with a fire, um, not through uh, electric heating. He has a computer and a telephone, but they're all shielded in steel so that the electromagnetic radiation can escape. And the source of his electricity is a battery, which is about 30 meters from his home, so it's far enough away so he doesn't feel that radiation. This is his claim that the electromagnetic fields are making him sick. Has there been any investigation into a psychological basis for the illness? Because we know that stress, trauma can induce profound reactions in the brain, and there actually are a form of seizures called psychogenic seizures, which are actually based on um, a psychological reaction. And there's also the nocebo effect, which is a suggestion or the belief that something is going to make you sick, and so it makes you sick. Yep, exactly. He himself has not been tested because he says that if he were in the presence of any kind of serious concentration of electromagnetic radiation, it would be extremely hazardous to his health. And understandably, if that's his belief, he would not expose himself to that situation. There have been studies of people who claim to suffer from EHS versus control groups. And most of the studies have found that 
the um, people who claimed to suffer from this condition were no better than the control group in identifying when they were in the presence of electromagnetic radiation. So most studies found that. Other studies, the minority of the studies, found that they did have better than average chance of identifying when they were in the presence of electromagnetic radiation. Now, it should be said that even if the basis is psychological, physiological illness can be very real. It doesn't lessen the the struggle or the pain that he's going through. Now, you met him for this article that you wrote. What was your take as a reporter? I believe he's a very serious individual, and I don't believe he's making it up, let me put it that way. I can not offer any explanation for his condition, how it exactly has been caused, or what is actually the sort of physiological reaction that's going on in his body, if there is one. James Geary is a journalist, and the profile of Per Seckerbach appeared in Popular Science magazine. We'll hear more from James later in this show. You know, Molly, this reminds me of an incident that uh, occurred at the Allen Telescope Array when I was up there one summer. This is an array of radio telescopes up in Northern California that pick up the signals that are coming from outer space. Well, that's right. And this very strange couple showed up one afternoon. Not so surprising that because we do, you know, have visitors there. But it turned out that this couple made a point of going from one radio observatory in the country to another. This is how they spent their vacation. And I thought maybe they're interested in astronomy, but no. The reason they were doing that is because the guy had this hypersensitivity to radio waves. Although radio telescopes don't actually emit any radio waves. Exactly. It's called a radio observatory, but maybe it ought to be called an anti-radio observatory because we don't transmit anything. So all these observatories are in what are called radio quiet zones. In other words, they are places where there's very little radio interference. There are no cell phone towers. There are no airport radars. It's very radio quiet at these observatories. So the irony is that he was going to radio telescopes around the world so he could get away from radio waves. What did you think was going on? Well, I had never heard of the condition of being hypersensitive to radio waves, so that was new to me. But clearly, he felt that something was happening every time he was near radio transmitters, and it bothered him sufficiently that he would spend his vacation driving from one radio observatory to another. So I had to ask myself, what's really going on here? Because these stories really do give you pause. Right, and they fit in with a growing perception of a causal link between sickness and cell phones. Do you worry about health risks from using a cell phone? Absolutely. Like what? Brain cancer. You know, I do wonder about people that always keep the Bluetooth in their ear. People say radiation in the ear. I don't keep my cell phone in my pocket. And do you worry about health risks from using a cell phone? Um, no, when I'm at the gas station, I worry worry about blowing up if the phone gets too hot. Because somebody told me that you can blow up, but that's about it. (laughs) All right. Thank you for talking with me. All right. But is there actually something going on? What is in our cell phones or in our electronic devices, in the case of Parasegerbach, that could be having an effect at all? What would the mechanism be? Well, Seth, let's take a look at what makes up a cell phone. If I cracked open my cell phone, and believe me, I have wanted to throw it against a wall, and if I did that and it busted open, what would I find inside? Well, you'd find mostly a big battery. (laughs) That takes up a lot of it. And, of course, the electronics, which wouldn't be very uh, interesting to look at, but they consist essentially of a transmitter and a receiver. And then, of course, there's a little microphone and an earpiece, uh, you know, the equivalent of one half of a headphone, and then a whole bunch of computer processing that handles all the protocol between the speaking and the listening. The point is that what's in there is really pretty benign, except for that transmitter, because that's putting out energy microwave radiation. And radiation is the buzzword. That's the word that makes people so anxious. Let's find out more about that. 
from University of California Berkeley physicist Richard Muller. Lots of things emit radiation, light bulbs emit radiation, you emit radiation. There is, of course, several kinds of radiation. There's the really damaging ionizing radiation. Ordinary visible light doesn't cause much damage, but ultraviolet light in sunlight is a kind of light radiation that gives you sunburn and can cause skin cancer. Now, what creates radiation? If my cell phone emits radiation, I emit radiation. Looking around the room here where we're sitting, there's a television, there's some other appliances, all these things that emit radiation. What do we all have in common? We're jerking around electrons. That's the simple answer. Other things can do it, but the kind of common everyday radiation we have comes when you take an electron and you have electrons in your body. And just because you're warm, these electrons are bouncing around. That's what heat is. And when they bounce around, they, their electromagnetic field gets detached. It comes out. We call that heat radiation or light radiation or microwave radiation. You can also do this in a microwave oven or in a cell phone by moving electrons around on a wire. And if you do it in the right way, straight lines generally don't work, but if you curve them or accelerate them or stop them, they emit electromagnetic radiation. That's one of the kinds of radiation that's very common. Radiation, again, means anytime energy leaves an object and goes off uh, into space, we call that radiation. It radiates. Now, you use the term, though, electromagnetic radiation. So radiation and electromagnetic radiation are the same thing? No. Uh, there's also nuclear radiation. There's ionizing radiation. We have many terms for this. It's sort of like the number of different terms that the native people of Alaska have for snow. There's a long list of different kinds of radiation. That's because radiation is just this generic term that says anytime energy leaves an object, it radiates out. So we use that term. And electromagnetic in particular, where does the magnetic part come? When you shake an electron, the electric field from that electron uh, radiates. It's sort of like shaking a rope and the wave moves down the rope, or splashing water, and a wave moves away from the splash. But it also creates a magnetic field. And half the energy is magnetic, half of the energy is electric. So uh, in physics, we used to think of magnetism and electricity as separate things, but now we know they're really just two parts of the same thing, the thing we call an electromagnetic field. You mentioned ionizing radiation. What is the difference between ionizing radiation and non-ionizing radiation? Ordinary light is not ionizing. It just hits your body. You may knock an electron off, an atom, uh, but ionizing radiation typically is radiation that when it passes through your body does damage all along its path. Because it's knocking off an ion. And, and many ions. It's not just one, like a particle of light. But in fact, uh, it, it creates a path of damage. And uh, ionizing radiation, such as uh, cosmic rays, a lot of radiation from a nuclear bomb was ionizing. We give it these names, alpha particles, beta particles, and so on. And they are the ones that really can do the most damage. And cell phones fall into the non-ionizing radiation category? Yeah, they're actually a special form of non-ionizing radiation. They are extremely ultra-low energy. Uh, They can't even knock an electron off an atom. All they can do is shake it a little bit. And that gives us what we know as heat. Heat is shaking electrons, shaking atoms. That's what microwave radiation can do. Exactly right.
Some of the concern about cell phones, one of the things that some scientists have said is that non-ionizing radiation or the radiation that comes from cell phones is not powerful enough to break molecular bonds. And I believe you just explained this. It means that there's not enough energy there to actually break a molecular bond within a cell. That's right. And even though it shares the term radiation, and I think that can cause fright in some people, it's such a quantitatively different radiation that all it can do is heat things up. And of course, that's really valuable. That's why we use it in microwave ovens. What is the difference between the radiation that is produced by cell phones, which you've explained, and that produced by cell towers? We see these cell towers going up everywhere so we can get wireless connections. Uh, What is the difference between the radiation emitted by those two optics? Just the intensity. Your phone emits a very weak signal, which is then picked up uh, by the sensitive receivers at these cell towers. They broadcast out too, and because they're broadcasting so many signals at the same time, they emit a more powerful signal. Okay, so do we need to stay away from cell phone towers? Well, the effect of cell phone towers would be like a, a microwave oven. If you get really close to it, there's some danger you will be heated up. You have to get really close for that. Uh, much more dangerous would be microwave emission towers that are designed for communications and have directed microwaves. Uh, what about the body scanners in airports? There's a lot of fear now that we're walking through these these X-ray scanners in airports that seem to leave nothing left to the imagination, <laughs> and 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 this is causing some concern. Is that a form of radiation as well? Yes, and it's a much more dangerous form of radiation. It's higher energy. And because of that, it can knock off electrons, and those electrons can cause some damage. So what they're doing in the airports is they're using the lowest form of X-ray they can and very sensitive detectors to use very low doses. So it's important. If they got the dose wrong, there's some danger there. Uh, Of course, they would see it right away in their images. Their images would be burned out like overexposed film. So the way these are being operated is actually quite safe. Uh, The issues of privacy are really, in my mind, the dominant ones here, not the safety of these. Mm-hmm. And then then finally, as a physicist who knows a lot about um, how all these objects work and radiation, do you ever hesitate to go through a body scanner in an airport, A, and B, do you use a cell phone? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not worried about the body scanner, uh, n- not in terms of any kind of danger. Uh, and of course, I use a cell phone. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Richard Muller is a physicist at the University of California, Berkeley, The instant physicist is what you could be if you pick up his book of the same title. Okay, Molly, so as a physicist, Richard Muller was talking about radiation, which is really a loaded word because when people think of radiation, they think of Chernobyl or an atomic bomb, but there are all kinds of radiation. I mean, the light from that desk lamp over there by you is is producing radiation. But but the point that he's making is that kind of radiation from this lamp or so forth, or even the radiation coming from your body, isn't going to make me ill. Well, that's right, because there's a, a lot of radiation that's very, very low energy. As Muller says, anything that's warm, anything that's above absolute zero, and that's everything, actually, is producing a little bit of radiation. You're producing radiation, mostly infrared and radio waves, but, you know, it's so weak, does nothing. So the idea is that, according to the physicists, if you look at the physics of the radiation that is coming from your cell phone, there's no explanation for how those weak waves could disrupt a cell, disrupt our DNA, and actually cause cancer. Yes, that's the whole point here, that that radiation, microwave radiation, you know, the the worst it can do is sort of warm up your body a little bit, but there's no known mechanism by which it could actually disrupt your DNA. So that's what makes this all kind of puzzling. 
So we'll go from the physics to the epidemiology, which is the study of disease, which is different. Coming up, the results of an international cell phone study. Plus, a woman who says that cell phone sickness is a slowly unfolding epidemic. Does the research support her claim? It's cell phone danger on Skeptic Check, but don't take our word for it. This episode is presented by Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX, a YouTube video series spotlighting the power of chemistry and how science and food can bring people together. In each episode, real scientists walk you through things like making your own cheese at home, the chemistry behind souffles, methods for botanical infusions, the formula for perfect deep-fried chicken, and much more. It's a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality with some great tips on how you can apply real scientific principles to your everyday cooking. Plus, it's just a lot of fun. Season 3 is airing right now, and you can catch up with every episode for free on YouTube by searching Chemists in the Kitchen or going to youtube.com slash labxnas. That's youtube.com slash X-N-A-S. Thanks for joining us on Are We Alone? Our monthly examination of critical thinking is Skeptic Check, and in this episode, assessing cell phone danger. Do these phones pose a risk to our health, beyond driving and talking, or texting and walking into traffic, that is? The Interphone study is the most recent extensive study of that question. It ended in the spring of 2010, a decades-long investigation into the link between cell phone use and the development of glioma, a kind of brain cancer. Thirteen countries participated. The United States did not. Molly asked journalist James Geary to review the results. Heavy cell phone use was defined in this case, by the way, as an average of more than 30 minutes a day for more than 10 years. Well, as to what it concluded, according to one of the the researchers who took part, the biggest conclusion of the study was that they needed to do some more research. (laughs) And that's a sort of um, depressing conclusion to come to after 10 years of research into cell phone radiation and whether it poses a health risk. But the reason this particular scientist came to that conclusion was that studying cell phone radiation is extremely difficult. It's extremely difficult to create conditions in which you can rely on the evidence that you are gathering. And one of the big faults of the Interphone study was that it was a retrospective study. So they were talking to people and asking them about their cell phone use over the past 10 years. Now, Imagine to yourself if someone came up to you and said, you know, uh, 10 years ago, did you mostly hold your phone on the right side of your head or the left side of your head? And were you talking maybe 15 minutes a day or 45 minutes or three hours? Is a very inaccurate way to gather information. Children were excluded from the study because when the study was devised more than a decade ago, not very many children had cell phones. And now practically every child in the West who's over the age of 12 has a cell phone. Children are particularly interesting to scientists because there is one theory that suggests they might be more susceptible to radiation because the bones in their skulls are thinner than those of adults and their brain is still developing and still growing and the radiation might have some effect on their development. The overwhelming majority of studies that have been carried out as part of Interphone and other studies have concluded that there is no correlation between cell phone use and brain cancer. And another drawback to the study was that it looked only at a number of different kinds of brain cancer. 
And a very small number of studies have found a correlation between very intense cell phone use and specific types of brain cancer. Well, but sound- most studies have found no correlation. It was my understanding that the Interphone study did find a correlation, a slightly elevated risk of cancer for heavy cell phone users, uh, which they defined as 30 minutes a day or more for more than 10 years. But then the study also found, a revelation that makes your head spin a bit, is that for people in the lower use categories, again, we have to define what these categories are for high use and low use, but there seemed to be some protective benefit from using a cell phone. This is very confusing. I think it was confusing even for the researchers. Some cases it looks like there was a correlation. In some cases it looked like actually cell phones protected you. What is going on? (laughs) I wish I knew what was going on, and I think uh, the scientists who conducted the studies wish they knew as well. As far as the protective benefit is concerned, the scientists themselves wrote in their summary of the Interphone study that they found it implausible that cell phone radiation could have a protective benefit in terms of cancer. By the same token, the very small number of studies that did find a correlation between heavy use and certain types of brain cancer, they also said that that was not completely reliable evidence because there were some methodological flaws in the way that the study was conducted. This was a retrospective, children were excluded, in some cases a sample bias, that there weren't enough people in the sample to draw a reasonable conclusion. So the end result of the Interphone study is basically, I'm sad to say, we're not much wiser about whether cell phones cause brain cancer or not. But having said that, most of the studies indicate that there is not a correlation between cell phone radiation and brain cancer. Most of the studies, some find a correlation uh, with heavy use. But what people like Per Segerbach and other researchers who are calling for more research into cell phone radiation are saying is that we're asking the wrong question. If we only ask, do cell phones cause brain cancer, that's the wrong question. And by the current evidence, the answer would be probably not. But what they suggest is that cell phone radiation might, in combination with other environmental factors, chemicals in our food, chemicals in our environment, in the water, various other environmental factors, combined with a specific individual's genetic makeup, in the presence of cell phone radiation, that that combination could, for a certain subset of people pose some health risks. And so what they're suggesting is that we have to ask a different question and not say simply and narrowly, do, does cell phone radiation cause cancer? We should ask, does cell phone radiation have any impact on the immune system? Well, James, how concerned should we be that part of the funding for this Interphone study was the Mobile Manufacturers Forum and something called the GSM Association, which is a consortium that represents the mobile communications industry. This wasn't all the funding, but as you said, they did contribute some of the funding. Is that something that should give us pause? No, I don't think it should be, because it was. that's all been declared, and the researchers who accept that funding, some of whom were featured in my piece, they are quite upfront about that. They said, yes, we did take that money, and we used it for the research. So, I mean, there's reason to be concerned, but we can't use that as the only reason to say that the research was faulty. Because even research that's not funded by those groups, most of them anyway, have reached the same conclusion and have not found a correlation. Again, that's not to say that there is no correlation, and it's not to say that researchers cannot be influenced by the source of their funding, because they obviously can. But in either case, it's not enough to dismiss 
those conclusions as sponsored by the industry or something like that. And certainly there have been examples from other industries where industry influence has manipulated results and produced false results. Any reason the United States opted out of this study? This was an international study, but the United States did not participate. There's a big cultural difference, I think, in the way that Americans regard technology and the way that Europeans do. In Europe, for example, there's much, much more concern about genetically modified crops. In America, not so much. And I think it's the sort of deep-seated cultural difference in that the Europeans are much more suspicious of technology, much more sensitized, I think, to the possible abuses and unanticipated side effects of technology, whereas Americans have more or less always been kind of gung-ho about the technology and sort of less reflective about the potential dangers. James Geary is a journalist who has been covering the cell phone controversy and the results of related scientific research. We'll hear a bit more from him again later. But first, as noted, the Interphone study could not conclusively rule out a link between heavy phone use and the development of brain tumors, but the association of the two was not ironclad. Scientists commenting on the study have said it neither confirmed nor denied an association, but for Deborah Davis, the evidence is in. Cell phones are dangerous. She told the New York Times that in light of the findings in other countries, Israel, France, Sweden, and Finland, we are looking at, quote, an epidemic in slow motion. Deborah Davis is the founder of Environmental Health Trust, a company whose stated mission is to educate individuals, health officials, and communities about health risks in the environment. She's also an author of Disconnect, The Truth About Cell Phone Radiation, What Industry Has Done to Hide It, and How You Can Protect Your Family. Deborah, let's get right to the point. Should I be afraid of my cell phone? It depends on how you use it. Cell phones are revolutionary devices that can save lives and improve our ability to respond to emergencies. But they should not be held next to the brain or close to the body. All right. Well, I want to get back to that because the crux of this whole book is simply that cell phones might, in fact, have deleterious health effects. You spend quite a bit of time describing how cell phones work, the development of the cell phone, mostly at the Motorola Corporation, Uh, These guys weren't thinking that there might be any danger in holding a cell phone close to your body at the time. No, nobody was thinking when phones were invented that the pulsed digital signal from a phone ultimately would prove to be dangerous. In fact, the first cell phones were not pulsed, but were on all the time, called analog. Today's phones are digital, meaning that the signal comes on and off, and it may be the digital nature of the signal that's most problematic. But phones have never been tested for safety because it was believed it was impossible for them to have any negative effect on our health. Now, you say that digital may be more dangerous than analog. Can you explain to me why that would be? Certainly. The analog signal is on all the time, slow and steady and continuous. The digital signal is episodic. It's on and off. And even though the digital signal is much, much weaker than the analog signal, it may be the on and off nature that may be more problematic. That's what studies have found in laboratory animals. When you look at their DNA exposed to the pulsed digital signal, it seems to be more easily disrupted and damaged than DNA that is not exposed to that signal. Well, that strikes me as very bizarre because when you say the signal is changing more quickly because it's pulsed, if you have a microwave transmitter, and these are high-frequency transmitters, they're operating in the gigahertz range, that means this signal, even from the analog phones, is changing billions of times a second. So who cares whether the uh, the audio is encoded 
in a digital format or an analog format. I mean, this is a bit technical, but uh, but this this whole subject is a bit technical. It, it is a bit technical, and I appreciate by the nature of your question that you understand much more about it than most people do. But for most of your listeners, let me just explain it like this. If you were riding in a bus or a plane, you're moving at a steady resonance, you're vibrating, and you don't feel it as long as the plane or the bus is going along in a steady pace. If you suddenly stop and start, that will make you lose your place if you're trying to read or write. And that may be what's going on with the digital signal. And we have no research of that sort going on right now in the United States, despite the fact that almost every adult and growing numbers of teenagers and young children are using these devices today. All right. Well, you say that there hasn't been any study in the United States, but there's just been released something called an interphone study that involves many thousands of people overseas in, in Israel and in Europe and so forth. Uh, are you familiar with the results of this study? I certainly am. In fact, what the study found is that if you look at all brain cancer overall and cell phone use, there is no increased risk. But if you only look at the people who have used the cell phone heavily for a decade or longer, you find a doubled risk. And some studies from Sweden, not part of Interphone, have found that teenagers who start to use cell phones before their 20s have four to five times more brain cancer before they reach the, their 30s. This is suggesting, consistent with what we know from much other research, that the earlier in life exposure starts, the greater the toxicity or the greater the cancer risk that will ensue. Well, you talk about these increased cancer risks as factors of three or five or something. That's very significant. But my question is, is the study showing that that increase is statistically significant? In other words, that increase has actually been proven to be due to the cell phone usage? Proof depends on where you stand and where you sit and perhaps who bought your chair. If you're talking about proof, think about how much proof we needed before we acted to control tobacco or asbestos. I don't think there's anyone listening who would doubt that we should have acted sooner to reduce these nasty habit of tobacco smoking and reduce our use of asbestos. And we're paying the price now with the continuing toll of lung cancer that would have been avoided if, in fact, we'd controlled tobacco sooner. With respect to cell phones, if you only ask about human evidence, you can say, well, with human evidence alone, we may not have definitive proof. But I have worked at the National Academy of Sciences and in leading science institutions around the world, and I believe at this stage of our understanding of the science, we are much more sophisticated than to simply debate whether or not we have enough sick or dead people, and we've got to look at all of the evidence, and when you do all of that, when you combine all of the evidence together, I think you have a very compelling case that cell phones do substantially increase the risk of brain cancer and cause other diseases and other health problems like reproductive failure that we have not even discussed very much nationally. It seems to be your contention that the cell phone industry has behaved and is behaving in a way that parallels that of the tobacco industry, which you've just mentioned. In other words, trying to hide the dangers of their product. Can you tell me in what way they've been doing that? Well, in fact, if you look at the fine print warnings that can now be found with all smartphones provided by the phone manufacturers themselves, they all say, do not keep the phone directly on the body. In fact, for the droid, it says, do not keep 
near the abdomen of pregnant women or teenagers. So the phone manufacturers are putting warnings on their products now, but very few people see those warnings because they come in packaging that most people toss away. The reality is this. There are people in the cell phone industry now who are working on designing safer phones, and we know that can be done. There are scientists working for the cell phone industry who recognize they've got to continue to reduce the amount of radiation that gets absorbed into our brains and bodies. But some people have behaved badly in the industry, and the sign of that is when the first studies were produced in the 1990s showing that cell phone radiation could damage DNA inside the brain cells of animals the industry hired a public relations firm to, quote, war-game the science. And that strategy worked for a while. But my book reveals that that strategy is no longer working. Well, let me ask this then. There seems to be no doubt that both the manufacturers and, for that matter, employers of people who use cell phones a lot are taking precautions. But on the other hand, when I fill up my car here in California at the local gas station, there are labels all over the pumps about this product contains ingredients that are known to the state of California to cause cancer. This doesn't mean that it's dangerous for me to fill up my car or to go shopping at the local supermarket, which has similar signs. Could this not be simply a covering their bets kind of action by uh, an industry afraid of lawyers? You know, you'll have to ask industry about that. I, I would like to hope that what it is is a sign that we all understand we've got to be smarter about these smartphones and understand that we've got to use them in a safer way or we face the specter of millions of health problems later on. It's one thing to say that there's been inadequate government research, and you certainly make that point strongly in your book, and that manufacturers aren't keen to face up to the possibility of a health threat here. But really, if I were to ask how many cases of cancer are going to be caused in the U.S. this year because of cell phone use, what would be your estimate? Can, can you make one to order magnitude? I would say very few. And the reason is this. Brain cancer, which is the cancer we're most concerned about, is relatively rare. Cheek cancer, parotid gland cancer, is also relatively rare. Acoustic neuroma a tumor, sometimes a cancer on the hearing nerve, is also rare. So you've got rare cancers, all of which occur right at the site of the cell phone, that are increased by cell phone radiation after 10 years of heavy use. Keep in mind that the United States, which is now the world's leading user of cell phones, has not had that many people in our population using cell phones heavily for 10 years. Unfortunately, we are starting to see signs in people who did start to use them heavily as teenagers of increased risk of cancer. So the current toll may be very small. And the reason I wrote my book is as a warning, because it's not too late. You can take that phone out of your pocket right now. You can use a headset, use a speakerphone, and you will reduce whatever damage may have occurred from cell phone radiation. Well, finally, Deborah, many, and in fact, I'd say that most of our listeners have a cell phone. In fact, some of them may be listening to this interview on their cell phones what would you recommend they do? Don't panic. Simply start to use a headset or speakerphone. Take the phone off your body. And occasionally you can do something really radical and turn it off. Deborah Davis, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. Deborah Davis is the founder of Environmental Health Trust and author of Disconnect, The Truth About Cell Phone Radiation. Are her claims well-founded? Reporter James Geary cautions against alarmism. I don't know for sure whether there is a risk or there is not a risk. What I do know for sure is I think there's enough credible science out there to investigate it further. Another thing that I know for sure 
is that sensationalistic stories that appear in the press on a regular basis about cell phones as some kind of killer. I think that is not responsible journalism. I don't think there is any scientific evidence of any kind of massive effect in imminent danger. But he agrees more research is needed, and he has also spoken with scientists who have alternative theories about how cell phones might disrupt our immune system. Next on Skeptic Check on Are We Alone? eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome back to Are We Alone? This is Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking. The studies on cell phone danger have not found an unequivocal causal link between cell phones and cancer. Yet we heard from a woman who says the evidence is strong that phones are a threat and we should use them with caution. Others say her conclusions are not substantiated and warn against alarmism. Most scientists, physicists especially, can't explain how such weak electromagnetic radiation could interfere with our DNA. However, almost everyone agrees that more research is needed. Now, earlier in the show, journalist James Geary said this may require a rephrasing of the question, not do cell phones cause cancer, but is there some way in which cell phones are disrupting our immune system? And he said that researchers are investigating possible routes. One of the areas of investigation is melatonin. Most people think of melatonin as the jet lag remedy, and, and it is that. It's also a key part of the immune system. And if your melatonin levels are low or if they're malfunctioning, then your immune system can be impaired. And some studies have found that electromagnetic radiation within the cell phone range, but also even lower than that, so the kind of radiation that would come from power lines, for example, that that can disrupt melatonin production. And if that is happening, and again, I have to stress, if that is happening with cell phone radiation in human beings, that could be a potential route through which an individual's overall immune system could be compromised, thus making that person more susceptible to disease, whether it be cancer or some other disease. Even the very low frequency that's emitted by cell phones? Yes. The range of the cell phone radiation can well, in the studies at least, has been observed to disrupt melatonin. So you can imagine, again, theoretically, if someone is constantly exposed to cell phone radiation or other forms of electromagnetic radiation within the range that could potentially disrupt melatonin, that that over time could impair someone's immune system. It won't have much of an effect if you're exposed to it for five minutes, but it's the constant presence of this type of radiation in our environment all the time, 24 hours a day, that at that level and at that constant exposure, in that frequency range, if it does disrupt melatonin, that's one possible route. But again, I stress that's one possible route. The scientists who are doing this research are not saying, this is how cell phone radiation makes you sick. They're saying, look, we've observed this effect in some studies. 
if we uh, extrapolated from that and applied it to uh, human population, what would it mean? So another possible route comes from a study, at least one that was done in Israel, that suggests that there's some interference in intercellular signaling, which is how cells talk to each other. What is that? At the cellular level, there's all kinds of chemical and and electrical signaling going on between cells, and and that's how the body maintains its immune system, it maintains homeostasis, and keeps us healthy. And some studies, like the ones in Israel that you mentioned, have observed that electromagnetic radiation within the cell phone range can disrupt those signals. So essentially, it kind of disrupts the signals, and when the signals get disrupted, the cells get stressed out, and they start producing stress hormones that sort of throw the cellular signaling network into a sort of crisis state. And that can potentially cause damage to the immune system. But again, I have to stress that one particular researcher who's done some of these studies, he himself says what he has observed in his experiments, the disruption is too small to cause any kind of biological effect. So essentially he's saying it's happening, but it's not happening at a level that is damaging to the organism as a whole. But what he's also saying is that this is an effect that hasn't been widely recognized. Officially, the only uh, the official recognition by organizations like the WHO and, and other health organizations is that the only effect that cell phone radiation has within the ranges uh, that are approved is a heating of tissue. And anyone who uses a cell phone a lot will notice their ear gets warm. What this research in Israel has shown is that heating is not the only effect. There is this other effect as well. And again, what these researchers are saying is, here's an effect that we didn't know existed, but we've just demonstrated that it happens. Is it possible that if this effect were to sort of initiate some kind of cascade of other effects in the organism, that could reach a critical mass where they could potentially be harmful to to the immune system? And we should study it more to find out how it's happening, why it's happening, and what, if anything, can be done to stop it from happening. Well, finally, James, what's the next step in all of this? What's the next study in the pipeline, and what will be looked at? Well, I think the Interphone study was useful because the biggest conclusion of the Interphone study is that we need more studies, and we need better studies. We need studies that are designed to capture the kind of information that will be reliable and useful and will also be sort of flexible enough to take into consideration the changing nature of the technology itself because every 15 minutes there's a new cell phone or, a, you know, better Wi-Fi access or, or whatever. And fortunately, in Europe, they are doing just such a study, and it's called the Cosmos study, and they'll be studying, I think it's 200,000 people. It's a, I can't remember the exact number, but it's quite a large number of people. And significantly, it is not a retrospective study, so they're not asking people well, what what was your cell phone used 10, 10 years ago. They're interviewing them now, so they will be following them for the next... 30 years, and asking them questions about their cell phone use and their exposure to other forms of electromagnetic radiation. And also, crucially, they are not asking a very narrow question, like, does cell phone radiation cause cancer? They're looking at a whole array of different potential health effects, from cancer and immune uh, depletion to things like skin irritation, problems with sleep, irritability, psychological disorders. So... All of the symptoms that people like Per Segerbach have said are correlated with their exposure to cell phone radiation. It's exactly these things that this study will be looking at. But we won't have the answers till 2040. <laughs> That's exactly the problem. 
So it'll take 30 years to do this, but that is the nature of science. To get the kind of information we need, the studies have to be conducted in a very rigorous way over a certain period of time. And given the nature of this particular technology, there's really no other way to do this. But I think in the meantime, if people are concerned, there's a lot that they can do to limit their exposure if they feel there is a risk. And that is to use, you know, earpieces so you don't have to hold the phone to, to the side of your head. Don't carry your phone on your body when it's on. Just turn it on when you need to use it. And these kind of things are true for children as well. Even scientists who say there is no risk from cell phone will gladly tell you that if any consumer or any individual feels personally that there might be a risk, there's a couple of very simple measures you can take to limit that risk and limit your exposure. James Geary, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. James Geary is a journalist and writer. You'll find a link to his article in Popular Science on this subject on our website, radio.seti.org. Well, Seth, we've reached the end of this program looking at this issue of cell phones and the possible danger, and there is no definite answer whether or not they do cause illness. Well, unfortunately, that's the nature of this particular problem, and that's very often the case in science. You only get a tentative indication for quite some time. It's sort of science in action. I mean, because this is a new technology, relatively new technology, there's a lot of investigation that needs to be done, and there are no conclusive answers. Yes, and it's clear that whatever effect there may be, if there is a health effect, it it must be small, because otherwise it would have been measured definitely by now. And and the other point is, as the baseline of the data becomes longer, which is to say, as you have groups of people that have used cell phones for, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, of course, you may find other effects that are unsuspected now. But how do you explain the the difference in interpretation? And maybe that's exactly what it is. On one hand, we heard from James Geary that there just has been no conclusive link between illness and cell phones and that obviously more research is needed. We should all proceed with caution. But you heard from Dever Davis that actually we should all be quite alarmed. How do you make sense of that different in interpretation with what's happening? Well, what I think you would say in most scientific disciplines is that the data are noisy. In other words, uh, you're looking for a very weak effect in in data that naturally, you know, vary back and forth depending on, uh, you know, how you've done the sample or what people you've asked. And also, the number of people involved in the studies has to be enormous in order to get that noise effect down far enough that you can see a a very weak signal in the noise. In some ways, it's kind of like SETI, actually. And isn't it also that when we hear reports that cell phones can make us sick, that cell phones, you know, cause cancer, emotionally, those stories are very attractive, and so we're guided towards those stories. The ones that say, well, the data they aren't in yet completely, we need more time, we need more study, those aren't as satisfying. Well, yes, and it's also less interesting. I mean, cell phones are dangerous. Everybody admits they're dangerous, mainly because people use them when they're doing something else and they just don't pay attention. That's a tremendous danger, and that's unequivocal. That one is very clear, and yet we're worrying about this very small effect. So you can say that even if it turns out that the statistics that are indicating some sort of danger from cell uh, cell phones are borne out, then the number of people that will die every year from cell phones is going to be dwarfed by you know, all the other major causes of death. I want to ask you about the role of anecdotal evidence. And anecdotes are the stories that we hear from other people, but that are not actual research data. And on Deborah Davis's website, she has a number of stories from people who have brain cancer, who have cancer, who also say that they have been on their phones a lot. And they believe that there's a link between the two. 
Yeah, no, that's 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 a false. That that's not a good way to do science, obviously, and that's reminiscent of the cases of uh, women that got breast cancer that had had breast implants. What you have to do is have a double-blind study, of course. You have to take a group of women that have, you know, that didn't have the breast implants and then an equivalent group of people that have and then look at the rate of breast cancer because women in both groups are going to get breast cancer at some rate. That's right. If we get cancer, it's very natural to say, well, my gosh, I've been on the phone a lot. Maybe the phone is causing the cancer. And just because someone is saying that that is the case, that doesn't mean that that's evidence. And what is the saying that the plural of anecdote is not data? Indeed, indeed. And of course, it's always very tempting if you're one of the ones that has gotten sick to want to find someone or something to blame. Seth, is this, is this controversy, is it reminiscent of other controversies, uh, perhaps power lines? Does that one fit this mold a bit? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, roughly 10 years ago, there was a lot of concern that power lines being exposed to just the currents of you know big power lines near your house or even the, the uh, wiring in the walls of your home was causing health effects. And it was exactly the same sort of story. There was data that seemed to indicate a greater incidence of leukemia, particularly in children, because of these effects. And then there were other studies that just didn't show it very clearly. And, I, you know, that's still not fully resolved, although most people have concluded that it's really not very dangerous. But, you know, you could do a very simple experiment and ask yourself, how many people who are welders die young? Because welders spend eight hours a day with high current wires in their hands, you know, welding stuff, and they're not dropping over at age 35. So that tells you right away that if there is an effect, it's a small effect. That's it for our show. Thanks to help from Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Jay Weiler. Also, support from Rena Sholsky-David and Sammy David, the NASA Astrobiology Institute, and the SETI Institute. If you'd like to comment on the program, congratulate one of us, or just sound off, please visit our WEA blog on our website or go to our Facebook page. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.